I'm Nick Breyer. I coordinate Oxfam's work on uh, economic inequality uh, around the Davos meetings in January. Hi, I'm Diego Vasquez, and I'm the research manager at Oxfam Mexico and one of the authors of the paper. Uh, my name is Nico Macias Aymar. I work as research coordinator at Oxfam Intermon in Spain, and I'm one of the co authors of the report. Hello, I'm Erin Sahan. I lead Oxfam's Future of Business initiative, which is focused on generating more businesses that drive down inequality. I'm Francesca Rhodes. I'm a women's rights policy and advocacy specialist uh, based at Oxfam Canada. Oxfam's this week releasing a new report, again on extreme inequality. And it's a report that's looking at, at what's happening with inequality around the world. It's looking at what that means for, for poverty, for women's rights, and then it's recommending what can be done about it. We're talking today with the authors of that report and some of the other policy experts within Oxfam who are looking at these issues. Uh, and I'm going to go first to, to Diego, one of the authors of the report. And Diego, I, I wonder if we could start by talking about what, what's really happening with with inequality, what's what's happening with uh, extreme wealth at one end and with with extreme poverty at the other end? How are the two connected? One of the of the recent trends that we have been observing about uh, global inequality, economic inequality, is that wealth inequality has been increasing during the last decade, and at the same time, income inequality since the 80s has been decreasing. In terms of poverty, efforts to tackle extreme poverty have been positive, but I think one of the arguments that we are doing in the, in the paper is that actually if international financial institutions and domestic governments could be addressing inequality with the same uh, importance as with uh, poverty, actually Im improvements in poverty could have been greater. I think one of our stats is that the current economic model is, has been very inefficient in terms of reducing poverty because even when extreme poverty has decreased, the majority of global growth has been captured by the topest deciles of, of income. No? In, in, in this way, in terms of the goals for the sustainable development goals for 2013, we wouldn't be able to achieve or to eradicate extreme poverty if we don't close the gaps between the rich and the poor. No? And just, just to come back to something you said there then, so you talked about, and it's a really important distinction to make, which I guess we people often don't make clearly enough, the difference between wealth inequality and income inequality. I also just want to uh, talk about the difference between global inequality or inequality between countries and inequality within countries. Because the yeah. things you're saying about, about the impacts on poverty and stuff are, are maybe more relevant to within country inequality, no? One of the trends that we observe also in terms of income inequality is that global inequality has been decreasing basically because the average income of some Asian economies has been growing. However, the majority of the countries in the world in the same time period has experienced an increase in inequality within their own countries. And this is very important because in the end, policies to tackle poverty and inequality are still false it's still in the hands of, of domestic governments, no? 
I think also adding to this, I think it is important to say that, as, as Diego mentioned, I mean, there are, there are two different forces when it comes to explaining a global income inequality, which means, as, as he said, um, inequality uh, between countries is decreasing because these uh, this, uh, developing countries increasing the average income and somehow converging to, to those uh, richer countries, but at the same level increasing inequality within those countries. But I think that we should take into consideration that basically these two countries that uh, they are basically China and India that they are um, they are basically explaining this this force this uh, decreasing inequality between countries uh, we are really worried we what we have been able to see is that uh, the inequality within these two countries is increasing so much that we are not expecting this uh, these two countries um, uh, moving down the global level of inequality so we are really worried about that so he's saying that even though, even some of the more positive news that we can see at the moment is is potentially short-lived and, and we might see a reversal. Diego Inigo, I mean, one thing to contribute on this point is that what we've seen in, in some of these countries where in-country inequalities is growing is a spread of a particular kind of business model, a spread of uh, a very Western Anglo-Saxon style shareholder capitalism that essentially if we think of business as being the fundamental a fundamental component of the economy then the shape of those businesses the way that they're framed what they're pursuing has a a huge impact in how the spoils of economic growth and the spoils of economic development are spread so so this is an interesting point and we've we've touched on uh, the role of international financial institutions and of governments and of businesses, and I want to come back to all this in a in a moment and talk about you know whose whose responsibility is it now to do something. But but just before we do, we've we've been talking about economic inequalities, and I think it's worth us uh, recognizing and, and and discussing a bit maybe the intersection between economic inequality and social inequalities, or, or uh, particularly. Gender, Oxfam's paper goes into some depth on the importance of looking at gender inequality in the context of economic inequality and and vice versa. Francesca, I come to you. As you say, economic and, and gender inequality are, are very closely linked together. Um, economic inequality is both a cause and a consequence of gender inequality. And what we're seeing is that the the broken economic model that we have today, which is really driving these extreme levels of of economic inequality, is also fundamentally incompatible with achieving gender equality in the future. So what we see is across the world in in all countries, women tend to be concentrated in, in the lowest paid roles, in the most impure forms of work, and also tend to, on average, own less wealth than men have less access to the resources. Um, and on the other hand, um, we can see that nine out of 10 billionaires in the world are men. So you can really see how gender inequality shapes the pattern of, of economic inequality. And women are concentrated in the lowest paid roles for, for a number of reasons. And because of the, the multiple ways that gender inequality affects women's lives and restricts their opportunities. Um, so it can start from, from women having less access to, to education and healthcare, to, to essential public services, um, and also because women have 
high responsibility for other forms of work and so um, in particular unpaid care work which women are, are mainly responsible for which is it tends to be kind of domestic work which is done in the home to care for families and to carry out domestic everyday tasks and women's much higher responsibility for this work and restrict their their opportunity to take up paid work so there's lots of different forms of it's very a nuanced picture of how gender inequality intersects with with economic inequality but that overall picture is is very stark where we see women being concentrated in in the lowest forms of work and and the majority of of these extreme extreme extremely wealthy people being being men i mean that kind of highlights doesn't it the the scale of the challenge of addressing both gender and economic inequality addressing the, the necessity of addressing the two together but also the opportunity that if if you can make progress on on one it helps the other and 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 addressing both together makes a difference to an incredible number of people then so let's talk about that let's talk about whose whose fault is is it that we're in the situation we're now in and whose job is it to do something about it I mean, f- from my perspective, it's it's the, the actors and the powerful who shape the ecosystem. The catch-22 is the people who have the power to most easily affect and shift the, the economic ecosystem, the social ecosystem, and uh, as, as well as the business ecosystem, are those who benefit from the, the status quo. So th- there's a little bit of a sequencing issue here about which comes first and who moves first. But ultimately, I think it's for the publics to call for the end of neoliberalism in, in all its forms, whether it's it's in the way that governments set policy, whether it's in the way that investments occur, it's in the way and the shape that businesses take and who they're acting on in the best interests of and the way that society and consumers behave. But essentially, it's got to be the public that stands up and says that every place where neoliberalism has manifested itself uh, its time is up and, and we need a new paradigm. I agree with what Enrich just mentioned. I would add that the dominance of, of, of some sort of economic paradigm, not only in policy making, but in terms of the academia during the, with the, with the changing, the more new Keynesian, Keynesian models to the neoclassical, which are the, basically the basis of neoliberalism in policy that dominated a lot of the of the field of the ideas during during the 80s during the 90s in the process of of reform this set of of ideas about uh, that we cover in the paper about um, meritocracy trickle down economics i think there are privatizing public services have been very harming no in terms of the ideas and so so i mean are we are we talking about a need for a comparable shift such as we saw, I suppose, with Keynesianism earlier in the 20th century and then with neoliberalism, is it, are we saying it's time for, you know, the next big idea? And if so, if we think that neoliberalism has been proven not to work for the majority, where do we look for that, that next big vision that, that addresses the, the scale of problems that we're, we're talking about? I think that more radical changes are are needed to the, to the economic model as as we see it uh, today because of the the way that extreme economic inequality is being driven and we're really failing to see 
the potential in the reduction in gender inequality that, that could be realised. So from a gender perspective, there's two particular ways which we can we can think about addressing that. And so businesses and governments definitely need, need to consider how to better support the collective bargaining of workers and uh, the unionisation of workers. Um, so labour movements have um, historically been played a really strong and important role in achieving gains, which we have seen for women in, in the workplace. So um, things such as paid parental leave and flexible working, for example, are all um, achievements of, of labour movements. Um, and the other is, is making sure that there's um, strong civil society space and there's opportunity for for people to to organize together for their for their rights so again in in um in government policy what we see is that countries which have strong uh, women's movements they're the countries which um have made historically made the most changes towards gender equality and inigo can i can i ask you about that i know you've been doing work on the sort of shifts we see in labor markets and if more and more workers are in precarious work in the informal sector, more and more multinationals are outsourcing to, to contract workers who have uh, fewer protections and rights, you know, automation coming in presents a new threat to, to the jobs of potentially a very, very large number of people. How do we reconcile that then with what Francesca is describing, which is the need for more collective organising, more collective bargaining and increase in the voice and and power of, of workers. The thing is that corporations should definitely play uh, their part in, in building uh, a fairer economy, a more human economy. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Arrange, you jump in because you know more, much more about that. But I think, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, I mean, earned income from work is, is, is probably the most, is, it is the most important source of income for most households. So increasing access to, to decent work uh, boosts uh, quality. So when it comes to corporation, we definitely, uh, we need to make sure that companies ensure worker representation on boards and remuneration committees and, and somehow find ways to, to include the voice of other stakeholders like workers in supply chains and local communities into decision-making processes. We've been also looking at uh, comparing uh, what's the dividends that like big corporations uh, pay to their shareholders, and we compared that to the wages that ordinary workers from the supply chains get, and the comparisons are, are, are terrible. So we need to make sure that, that companies, I mean, we... we we wouldn't let uh, companies share dividends if they are not paying a living wage. International companies can choose to prioritize what, what could be the, the, the well-being of, of lower-paid workers by refraining from uh, rewarding shareholders through dividends or paybacks or paying bonuses to executives and the highly paid until uh, their employees have received a, a living wage. Okay, and Erin, let me ask you about that one then. Okay, three scenarios. One, the kind of uh, reforms that Inigo is talking about. One option is companies are, are asked and encouraged to do these things voluntarily. Another is that uh, those same companies are in some way forced to take those kind of steps by governments. Or a third, as we say, those kind of companies structured as they are, these giant multinationals, that structure is in itself a problem. So rather than, I suppose, you know, tinkering with those we just put our efforts into uh, incentivizing the growth of different kinds of company that where the, the, the 
that worker voice, the voice of other stakeholders is more central to their sort of core business. Yeah, I think I think two of those options are, are really worthwhile, and I think one is naive. Um, the voluntary one is generally one that we've been backing for years. So this is this is the the attempt to try to convince people to have much more enlightened self interest and much more longer term view about the self interest and say, look, give up on some dividends now, pay workers a little bit more now, share a bit more of your profits, and in the long term, it, this will actually yield better results for you. Um, this has been the mainstream approach to corporate social responsibility for the last two or three decades and essentially is the core tenet of what neoliberalism is for business, which is to say, look, it's the right thing to have uh, the businesses structured so they give exclusive power to investors and exclusive priority to investors. And all we need to do then is hope that those those groups of stakeholders, those investors who are by and large richer people, because proportionately they're the ones with more capital to invest, that they use their power to do good for others. And sometimes that will work. And there are businesses and examples and case studies where companies have made more money by doing the right thing and have made more money by not cutting their costs. Uh, but that's not necessarily a, a rule of nature that, that takes hold. So we do need governments to stop racing to the bottom to attract capital and trade. Um, when I talk to, to government leaders about the kind of policies that we're all talking about, about increasing the minimum wage, having more regulations that protect human rights, that protect the environment, that promote women's empowerment, that's, that, that protect people against discrimination, they say that they're afraid to drive away investment. So we need some sort of a global effort for countries to do this in unison. Because if one country does it, then capital will punish them. Then investment will flood to the places where the taxes are the lowest, the regulations are the lowest, the wages are the lowest. Uh, and, and that's only going to be supercharged with increasing, uh, increasing globalization, increasing global trade. So we need some sort of an agreement that stops countries racing to the bottom. And that's, that's that second option, which I think is central. But the third option is one where I think we've for some reason, people that think about inequality, think about policy, it's been the one that people have been most shy to explore. We've, we've accepted the nature of corporations as if they're some sort of a naturally occurring organism. This is a human invention. We've, we made this up. We made up this entity that, ha that provides power to stakeholders based on who, who's invested the most capital. And we can design them differently. We can design them so that other stakeholders sit on boards, own a share, Profit sharing occurs differently. Other priorities uh, are put ahead of maximizing returns or maximizing profits. Um, and, and that's really the place where I, I feel we need to have the confidence to take off that straight jacket of maximizing returns to investors and constantly prioritizing power to, to those who already have capital to invest. Thanks, Erin. I just want to follow up then on that point around this, the need for global efforts and, and this this race to the bottom that we see on environmental regulations and, and labor protections and, and, and taxes and so on. So what, you know, what are the possibilities for action within a country or, for, you know, a, a particular business or a particular government to really lead, or is it just impossible for anyone to do something unilaterally? And really what you need is, is the world's biggest institutions, biggest companies, most powerful governments to all work together. Uh, nowadays, 
one of the main challenges, and I think this is the most important challenge in terms of, of multilateral efforts, is if fiscal policy avoid this race to the bottom in terms of, of taxes. And, and in here, efforts have been made, for example, in BEPS, which is based erosion profit shifting in OECD. But uh, I think more effort and more coordination needs to be done in order to avoid companies to take their money to to uh, fiscal paradises, no? So, so these are these are huge challenges. Then I don't wouldn't want people listening to feel that this is all therefore completely impossible. If you were to, and this is a question for everyone, in 2018, in the next 12 months, what sort of one or two things would you most like to see happen? Would you most like to see governments or or, or business leaders commit to, and and actually start delivering? I think there are several things they can they can do, but it starts with a vision that is an economy that's populated by businesses and institutions and policies and an ecosystem that is fostering a new kind of business world, a new kind of reality for the economy, and and that means that we need everything from uh, policies that are that are fostering finance for businesses that are owned by communities or workers, that are new age hybrid cooperatives, that are innovative business models that deliberately spread power and priority differently. We need finance for them. We need tax rules that favor them. We need uh, other kinds of government support that favor them. We need an accounting system. We need business schools. We need a whole ecosystem that is deliberately starting to shape a new business world that is structured to deliver different kinds of objectives. And uh, and that must start by setting a vision and, and really accepting that reality at the highest levels of government power. I think one of the things that we need to stop or at least right-wing candidates and government need to stop is bashing taxes, doing fiscal populism. I think one of the dangers of uh, with the advent of these right-wing movements is fiscal populism. I think uh, the, the, the most important danger, the, 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 the most important threat right now is fiscal populism and fiscal populism is basically saying to the electorate, you know, let's cut taxes and let's uh, reduce social spending, government is inefficient. I think for me, the most important thing is to stop this trend to keep diminishing the role of government, because I think that would, in the long term, exacerbate our our inequality uh, crisis, no? Thanks. Uh, Francesca? Um, So firstly, I think the main priority should be to focus on women workers who are at the bottom of supply chains or who are in the lowest forms of work and really establishing action plans for improving their working conditions and making sure that work um, lifts them out of poverty. So measures such as implementing and increasing minimum and living wages. Um, And secondly, I think it's really important governments start Um, assessing and implementing policies which are designed specifically to support gender equality. So one way would be through um, using gender budgeting, which is a way of assessing a a government's budget. So you can do both public spending and taxation and looking at what is the impact of those economic policies on women and men and what is the potential impact going to be on on inequality. Thank you. Uh, In you go. 
Well, first, I would ask government and political leaders basically to walk the talk when it comes to inequality. And it seems to me that uh, political leaders talk a lot, but they don't do anything uh, to reduce this inequality. So I really would like to hear from uh, government leaders setting concrete town-bound targets and action plans to reduce inequality. For business leaders and corporations, I really would like them to to get to know that they play a major role in, in defining or, or in constructing the, the current levels of inequality. So they need to uh, realize that they, they need to play a major role in designing uh, what we could say a fair economy from the start. Lastly, I really would like to, I mean, just beyond governments and, and business leaders, I think that ordinary people, we as consumers, I mean, we have a lot to say on that. I mean, uh, we take, we consume every day and and so every day we, choi- we, we choose among different options and we need to take into consideration that, that everything we consume has a, a sort of a, an inequality effect. So I really like to, to see ordinary people like considering that whatever they buy, whatever the services they, 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 they get, I mean, there, there is an equality effect on that. That seems to me to be a great note to finish on. Thanks for listening and uh, please download our new report, which is available on the bottom of this page.